0: part five of the road past Kennesaw: the atlanta campaign of eighteen sixty four by richard manning mcmurray this librivox recording is in the public domain part five peachtree creek john bell hood the new commander of the confederate forces found himself in a difficult position on the morning of july eighteenth eighteen sixty four Hood was young, only thirty three, and relatively inexperienced in handling large bodies of troops. After graduation from West Point in the same class with the Federal Generals McPherson and Schofield, he had served with the U.S. Army until the spring of 1861, when he resigned and cast his lot with the Confederacy. In the early years of the war, Hood had risen rapidly in rank, a rise more than justified by his outstanding leadership at the brigade and division level until the summer of eighteen sixty three hood had been physically one of the most magnificent men in the confederate army a woman who knew him in eighteen sixty one described him as six feet two inches in height with a broad full chest light hair and beard blue eyes with a peculiarly soft expression commanding in appearance dignified in deportment gentlemanly and courteous to all by the time he took command of the army of tennessee hood's appearance had undergone some changes his left arm dangled uselessly at his side smashed by a federal bullet at gettysburg in july eighteen sixty three his right leg was gone cut away at the hip following a wound received at the battle of chickamauga in september eighteen sixty three hood suffered great pain from these wounds and no doubt he should have been retired from field command but he was not the kind of man who could stay away from the army during a war. After recovering from his second wound, he was sent to the Army of Tennessee as a corps commander and had served in that capacity until Davis elected him to succeed Johnston. He may have been taking a derivative of laudanum to ease his pain, and some students of the war believe that this affected his judgment. Many soldiers in the army distrusted Hood's ability some officers resented his promotion over the heads of generals who had served with the army since the beginning of the war hood himself believed that the army had been demoralized by johnston's long retreat and hence was unlikely to fight well nor could the tactical situation have brought hood any encouragement thomas's army of the cumberland was advancing southward directly toward atlanta while the armies of mcpherson and schofield were east of the city advancing westward two of the four railroads that connected atlanta with the rest of the confederacy were in federal hands unless hood could keep the remaining lines open the city was doomed on July 19, the army of the Cumberland crossed Peachtree Creek, but as it advanced it drifted toward the west. Thus, by the afternoon, a gap had developed in the northern line between Thomas on the right and Schofield in the center. Hood decided to concentrate the corps of Hardy and Stuart against Thomas. The Confederate commander hoped to overwhelm the isolated army of the Cumberland before help could arrive from McPherson and Schofield hood relied upon his former corps temporarily commanded by major-general benjamin f Chetham and the cavalry to defend the area east of atlanta the attack on thomas was set for one p m july 20. early in the morning of the twentieth while the southerners were preparing to assail the right of the federal line the northerners east of atlanta moved west along the georgia railroad toward the city Their progress was so rapid that Hood felt it necessary to shift his army to the right in an effort to strengthen the forces defending the eastern approaches to Atlanta. This movement led to such confusion in the Confederate ranks that the attack against Thomas was delayed for about three hours. When the Southerners were finally ready to strike, Thomas's men had had time to establish and partly fortify a position on the south side of Peachtree Creek. What Hood had planned as a quick blow against an unprepared northern army thus developed into a headlong assault against a partially fortified line. For several hours the southerners threw themselves against the Federals. Most of the attacks were halted before they seriously threatened the Union position, but for a short while it appeared that some of Hardy's men would sweep around the left of Thomas's line and win a great victory. Hastily, Thomas assembled artillery batteries and directed their fire against the Southerners. Eventually, the Confederates were driven back. While fighting raged along Peachtree Creek, McPherson continued to push toward Atlanta from the east. By 6 p.m. Hood was forced to call upon Hardy for troops to reinforce the southern lines east of the city this order drew from hardy the reserve division that he was preparing to throw into the assault against thomas and forced him to abandon the attack the first of hood's efforts to cripple the federal army had failed although at the time some southerners saw it as a blow that slowed federal progress northern casualties in the battle of peachtree creek were reported at sixteen hundred estimates of southern losses mostly from federal sources range from two thousand five hundred to ten thousand it seems now that four thousand seven hundred is a reliable estimate of confederate casualties the battle later became a source of controversy between hood and hardy hood smarting under the criticism of joseph e johnston and others blamed the failure to crush thomas on hardy the corps commander hood charged had failed to attack at the proper time and had not driven home the assault hardy who had outranked hood when they were both lieutenant-generals and who may have been disgruntled at serving under his former junior replied that the delay was caused by hood's decision to shift the line to the right and that the assault had not been as vigorously executed as it normally would have been because hood's late afternoon order to send reinforcements to the right had deprived the attackers of the unit that was to deliver the final blow post-war commentators mostly favor hardy and a careful examination of the evidence supports this view the battle of atlanta after the battle of peachtree creek attention shifted to the eastern side of the city hood determined to strike mcpherson who on july twenty and twenty one had moved past decatur and entrenched a line running north and south a few miles east of atlanta the Confederate commander realized that he might march troops around the left of McPherson's position and attack him from the flank and rear. He chose Hardy's corps to be the flanking column and planned to have Chetham's men attack the front of McPherson's army from the west, while Hardy struck from the south and east. With luck, this sensible plan could result in the defeat of a large part of Sherman's forces." late on the twenty first hardy's men withdrew from their advanced position north of atlanta and by midnight they were marching out of the city they were to move southward then turn and swing eastward and northward meanwhile the other southerners fell back to shorter lines where it was hoped they would be able to hold off the federals while hardy outflanked them on the morning of july twenty two sherman found the southerners gone from his immediate front and concluded that atlanta had been abandoned however as his armies pushed forward they discovered that the defenders had only fallen back to a new position the northern advance contracted the federal lines and the sixteenth corps of mcpherson's army was crowded out of place mcpherson ordered it to move to his extreme left thus at the time hardy was moving to that area mcpherson by chance was sending in reinforcements hardy's march was long and hard poor roads inept guides and the july heat combined to delay the southerners it was not until noon that hardy had his men in position and at one p m he sent them forward the confederates made their way through heavy underbrush and emerged facing the federal sixteenth corps which had halted in a perfect position to meet the charge which broke upon them poor coordination also weakened the force of the confederate offensive chatham's men who assailed the seventeenth corps did not join the assault until about three thirty by which time hardy's attack had lost much of its force nevertheless the fighting was severe one federal brigadier wrote of the attackers they burst forth from the woods in truly magnificent style in front of my right hardly had the enemy made his appearance in my front when the artillery opened on them a deadly fire which rather staggered their line yet on came the advancing rebels and hotter grew the fire of our artillery at the same time the infantry opened on them with cool and deadly aim still on came the charging columns more desperate than ever those in front urged up by those in rear the first charge was driven back but the southerners returned to the attack again and again throughout the long afternoon several times they swarmed over the federal positions capturing men and cannon but each time they were driven back In one of the early charges, McPherson was killed by advancing Confederate skirmishers as he rode forward to rally his men. Finally, about 7 p.m., the Southerners abandoned the attack and fell back. Their losses have been estimated at about 8,000. Union casualties were reported at 3,722. For the second time, Hood had lashed out at his opponent and had been thrown back later he tried to shift the blame to hardy whom he accused of failing to be in the proper place at the proper time in post-war years a bitter verbal battle raged over the question most present-day authorities feel that hardy did all that could reasonably have been asked of him his troops were worn from the battle at peachtree creek the bad roads slowed his march and the fateful positioning of the sixteenth corps was a matter over which he had no control in the summer of 1864 however many confederates saw the battle as a splendid victory one artilleryman wrote on july 23 we gained a great victory yesterday of which i suppose you know from the newspapers as much as i do we left before much was accomplished but hear that our corps captured three thousand five hundred prisoners and twenty-two pieces of artillery and the enemies killed and wounded amounted to twice our own Ezra Church. For several days after the Battle of Atlanta, there was a lull in military activities around the city. Both sides were reorganizing. Sherman selected Major General Oliver O. Howard to command the army that McPherson had led. On the Confederate side, Lieutenant General Stephen D. Lee replaced Chetham as commander of the corps that had originally been Hood's by july twenty sixth sherman had decided upon his next maneuver his goal was the railroads south and west of atlanta the last links between that city and the rest of the confederacy and to reach them he would swing howard's army of the tennessee around from his extreme left to his extreme right the movement began that afternoon and by nightfall on the twenty seventh howard's men were west of atlanta early the following day the advance was resumed the only effective opposition came from a small body of Confederate cavalry. Hood was aware of Sherman's new maneuver and determined to block it by sending the corps of Lee and Stuart west along the road to the little settlement of Lick Skillet. By noon, the opposing forces were in the area of a meeting house known as Ezra Church, about two and a half miles west of Atlanta. The Confederates had been ordered to attack and prevent the Northerners from crossing the road, and Lee and Stuart sent their men forward in a series of assaults against the 15th Corps. The Federals had not had time to entrench, but they had piled up barricades of logs and church benches, and these afforded some protection. Our skirmishers, overpowered by numbers, were compelled to fall back to the main line, wrote a Union officer followed at an interval of but a few paces by dense columns of the enemy which covered as they were by the undergrowth had advanced within forty or fifty paces of our lines when a terrific and destructive fire was opened upon them and was continued steadily until their advance was checked at the distance of some twenty to thirty paces their lines were cut down disordered and driven back some distance when they rallied and again came boldly forward to the charge but under the murderous fire of our rifles were no more able to disorder or discompose our lines than before they gained a little ground several times only to lose it inch by inch after the most terrible fighting on both sides after a very short interval which did not amount to a cessation of the battle new and largely augmented columns of the enemy came pouring in upon us with the same results however as before although their colours were planted within twenty paces. For four or five hours the assaults continued, but the Confederates attacked piecemeal, separate units rushing forward, rather than striking a unified blow, and all their desperate courage was not enough to overcome this handicap. The Southern Army is estimated to have suffered about 5,000 casualties in this battle. Federal losses were reported at 600. End of part five.